0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. The Other People Podcast is a listener-supported show. All episodes of this program, nearly 600 episodes and counting, are all available for free. It's all offered freely. I invite you to support this podcast. To do that, just go to patreon.com slash pod. That's patreon.com slash pod. Thanks.
1: You are not alone. You have
0: found other people.
2: You and I have I like a friend in
0: common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. <laughs> Jake, did what? Struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one person at just one time. Hey everybody, how's it going? Oh, right. Welcome to <laughs> right. Other People. Welcome to the Other People podcast. I'm Brad Listy. This is the latest episode of the show. What do you think about that? Here I am in Los Angeles. I have Twiggy here. I feel like she's going to bark, but uh, I hope you guys are well. I'm very excited to have Lillian Rivera on the program. She is a YA author, so I'm sort of breaking the mold a little bit. I feel like this is something I should have been doing more of all the way along uh, in talking to young adult authors and getting a window into that world. Lillian's latest novel is called Dealing in Dreams. It is available from Simon and & Schuster, and she and I are going to be in conversation momentarily. It was great fun meeting her and talking with her. Before we get there, I do want to uh, mention that this month, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club is featuring Juliet the Maniac as its official pick. Juliet the Maniac is the debut novel by Juliet Escoria. It is generating a lot of buzz. I don't know if you guys have been picking up on this. I certainly have. We're very excited about this book and excited to shine a light on it. And uh, I wanted to mention that Juliet is not going to be on the program this month in full. She is uh you know, she lives on the East Coast out in West Virginia, and a lot of her early tour dates are happening out that way, but she is a native of California and has plans to be out here later this summer. And so we are going to do the interview in full when she's out here so that she can come over and sit down with me in person and uh we can hash it out. So Juliet the Maniac available imminently from melville house the official may pick of the nervous breakdown book club and i thought seeing as juliet's uh you know full interview isn't going to happen for a little while that it might be nice to call her and talk to her briefly about her book and catch her in this moment as it's just about to launch so why don't we call juliet escoria what do you say Hello Hello, Juliet.
2: Hi, Brad. How
0: are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? I want to ask you right away just because uh, I feel like this is a big moment for you. This is like uh you know your your debut novel, correct?
2: Yes, it's the first novel I've written yeah, and, and published
0: and there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of buzz. I feel like there's like I've been seeing it for uh, months now. There's been like kind of a steady drumbeat of uh, excitement for this book. I imagine you are internalizing that and like any author going to feel a sense of excitement when their debut novel is, uh, is about to drop. But like, how are you managing the emotional content of all of like the pregame? That's
2: funny that you're asking that to Cause like I a lot of times I'm doing just fine. Like it's like normal levels, but today I've been like really crazy and like OCD symptoms, which is weird. Cause that doesn't usually happen to me. Um, so some good days, some like normal days, but some uh, just like oh god. It's funny how I can turn positive things into a negative thing. I'm really talented at that.
0: <laughs> what does it mean, OCD thing? So, what does that mean, like in practice?
2: Um, I don't. I've never been diagnosed with OCD, um, but because the symptoms seem to be kind of like roving, like it'll manifest in one way and then it'll switch to another, and. Today it's been like hypochondria. Like I'm like like sixty percent of my brain is sane and then like forty percent is convinced I'm gonna die of a blood clot
0: before it doesn't make any sense. Like before you can enjoy any of, of the spoils. Like you're gonna miss the entire party.
2: <laughs> well, like that's not even like part of the consideration, at least in like the rat brain like insanity that's part of my brain.
0: So what is it though? You think you're going to die? Like is because I, I feel like I just went through this with my daughter. Like she had a field trip coming up, and I was going to chaperone it. And she's like she's eight years old, so this is like exciting to her that I was going to be the chaperone for a field trip. And then the night before she was like, I can't sleep. Like, what if I die in my sleep and then I'm going to miss the field trip? And I should also put an asterisk next to this and just be like, my daughter is a very sensitive child. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But she was like very concerned that because something great was about to happen, she was excited about it. She then got all this anxiety in the preamble. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I think also like I just deal with stress poorly and I have like a lot of like small tasks to take care of and that manifests in like a hamster wheel brain. Got it feels it. very rodent-like.
0: Well, and we should say uh, too that we're going to have a fuller conversation about all of this in the weeks ahead when you're out here in Los Angeles. Um, True. But having written uh, in other forms before, and this being your first novel, can you give just like a little bit? of insight into like the experience and how it might have different, uh, differentiated itself or did it differentiate itself?
2: Yeah. I mean, writing a novel, at least this book for me has been way, way harder. Um, just cause I feel like you have so many more balls that you're juggling. Um, so it took longer, it was more difficult, but it was also more fun too. Um, so that's good when at least like the difficulties are balanced by it being like just, fun to write
0: well i look forward to catching up with you in person when you're out here and we'll we'll sit down and do uh, a full talk
2: you too i want to meet your daughter
0: yeah well hopefully she'll be around you know I, i think summer she should be unless she's at like some sort of camp or something but uh i'll put you guys in touch cool all right well listen good luck on tour and we'll see you soon
2: thank you brad
0: Okay, so that's Juliet the Maniac. I mean, Juliet Escoria, author of Juliet the Maniac, the official May pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. The Nervous Breakdown, in case you don't know, is my online culture magazine and literary community. The editor-in-chief is Joey Grantham. If you want to submit work to the Nervous Breakdown, the site has been around for more than a decade. It has its own monthly book club. The way it works is you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview those authors on this program. It makes for an enriching cultural experience. If you're interested, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. So let's get to uh, the main event, shall we? Let's get to today's guest, my conversation with Lillian Rivera. She is a YA author, and her latest novel is called Dealing in Dreams. It is available now from Simon & Schuster and has been earning rave reviews. I had such a good time meeting her and talking with her. uh, She came over here. She sat down across from me. We had a conversation and uh, I recorded it. Can you believe it? You want to hear that? Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Lilium Rivera.
1: Oh, I, I love that time period. I know a lot of people freak out about that time period. Like, no, who wants to go back to high school? I know I don't. But I love being able to go back. <laughs> and um, it, to me, it's a, a discovery of firsts. So it's like the first time you kiss a, you know someone, or the first time you discover your own sexuality, or the first time, I don't know, you find out your parents are you know drug dealers, whatever it is. But I, I kind of love that.
0: Well, it's I mean, it's ripe for fiction. It's ripe for narrative. Like, that time of life is so supercharged. And uh, the stakes seem so high. Like, every little micro-interaction that yeah. you have in high school. Um, like, I, I have some recall of that. But I think my problem when i conceive of like my own writing or i imagine trying to write a story that takes place in those times is that my recall feels so limited like do you have Mm. extra good recall of those times and those experiences
1: i do i mean i i vividly remember the feelings of you know it's universal the the feelings of alienation or the feelings of being being other or all those things like i i I love going back there, and I know that I have a. I feel like I have a really ta- strong talent capturing dialogue, and specifically if I'm talking about someone like f- from the Bronx, like I grew up in the Bronx, so I know I could capture that dialogue. Which
0: but, is a very specific, yeah, like dialect.
1: <laughs> yes, it is, especially when we're talking about Puerto Rican, New Rican, Bronx dialect. <laughs> so it's very specific. So I know I could capture that, um, but I do have fun just writing about those relationships those really young intense relationships i feel like those are the the first times that you're having the most intimate relationships that could be just your best friend you know especially like
0: among that. girls
1: yeah like i love that it's so intense and so and could be violent and and could be fraught and I love digging digging deep into those kind of relationships.
0: Did, did you make a financial consideration as you were getting started as a writer where you actually like read about the mar- like the literary marketplace and saw that YA books have a bigger market, they sell more. Does that factor into your decisions creatively?
1: No, I mean, the thing was that I when I started writing fiction, I just would always I would always go towards that voice. I would always, it would always be a 16 year old girl. <laughs> and so I, I knew that I could capture that. Um, although I was still at the same time writing like, you know, literary short stories and those literary short stories are usually adult.
0: <laughs> so, so you do both.
1: So I do both. Okay. So I try to, when I'm writing short stories, I think of adult themes so we're writing through an, an adult point of view and then when i write my bigger projects i'm always going at why
0: that's interesting yeah that's an interesting split
1: yeah i don't know
0: why but it's good to maybe work both muscles right because then when you write maybe you write younger characters inside of those short stories it, you know maybe sharpens you and then vice versa right
1: yeah i mean i I just there's definitely more more room to you know play around with the dynamics like family dynamics and you know relationships um, when you're doing it in a young adult book. Um, I just I love that, I, and I also feel like even with YA, there's just a lot of experimentation happening in in the market. You know, in the marketing and the trends that are hap- that are in the, in the world and YA world. And so I just there's just great stuff. And I want to be a part of that conversation. And I grew up reading Judy Bloom books. I grew up reading Essie Hinton books, and I wanted those books to feature a Latinx person, and you know, in the forefront. So I I want to be able to write those.
0: So did you have a particularly intense? I mean, we all have an intense adolescence, but like, did did you have a particularly intense adolescence when you look back on it that you think might? Uh, cause you to strongly identify with characters in that age range.
1: Um, well, I mean, I grew up in the South Bronx. I grew up in the housing projects, 183rd. I grew up during um, during the rise of hip hop and crack epidemic. <laughs> so all those things kind of like um, kind of like fall into my fiction. I'm always writing about gentrification and. Social experimentations like housing projects, I feel are like social experimentations, and government and drug enforced drug programs, you know, and all these kind of things kind of just play into my fiction. So I didn't have like a fraught uh, childhood, but I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, was hard. To grow up in.
0: Yeah. So and, like, you know, I was going to say like material, like you hear somebody grew up in the South Bronx in the projects. And I think from the outside looking in, a lot of people would be like, uh, gangs, guns, violence. Yeah. Like that was all around, but inside like, materially, like, you know, inside of your particular, uh, home life, like it was relatively functional.
1: I mean, it was functional in the sense that in you know, my parents, all they wanted to do was, make sure that we were driving in some way. So um, even if we were living in the projects, you know, they were really strict, you know, with us about making sure we go to church and they're very strict Catholics and um, they protected us or especially the girls um, way more than the boys. But um you know, I grew up like just knowing, you know, whenever I would speak to anyone who didn't, who's never been to the Bronx, it was always that moment of like, oh, you're from the Bronx, you must come from violence. So you must come from, you must know how to use a knife, you know, and just like kind of <laughs> stupid shit like that. Right. And so then I'm just like, you know, I would always come into a room on the defensive of like, yeah, I'm from the Bronx. What? Because <laughs> like
0: I did, I have I never lived in New York, and I don't. I mean, I have like a passing understanding of the boroughs and like the way it's all uh, arranged, right? But when you come from the Bronx, that's like that's like the least desirable place.
1: I mean, yeah, or at least that it was used a, to be. I like to say it's the last frontier.
0: Okay. because
1: now it's all of a sudden
0: it's hipsterville
1: right like it's changing and i go back a lot i i was just there a couple of weeks ago and um it's changing
0: and the yeah. same thing with harlem right it's like harlem has become like it's like the rents are lower mm-hmm. and so people move up there and get more square footage or right
1: <laughs> and the same thing's happening in the bronx and it's it's a little disturbing in the sense that because i grew up Maybe when I was young or maybe as a teenager, I grew up wanting, let's say, a Starbucks or something like that, you know, a fancy cafe and not really understanding what that meant for any mom and pop coffee shop that was been running forever in that neighborhood. So now those things are happening and I'm like, I I go back and I'm witnessing the change and it's so it seems so drastic. Um, It's a little it's a little just disturbing. (laughs)
0: Uh, it's also hard because you know that like you can't go home again Mm -hmm. um especially like i don't know how often you get back but i moved when i was a kid so i kind of you know i didn't and my parents no longer live in the places where i was raised right so i don't go back very often Mm -hmm. but like so it's these huge chunks of years go by and then you go back and it's just like so different that you feel um, like extraterrestrial, you're just like, what is it? What happened? You know, it's like right. it's, it's just gone. I well,
1: I mean, I go back a lot because I almost uh, my whole family still lives there, and they still live in the same na- neighborhood. I mean, obviously they don't live in the projects, but they have a house and live on uh, like 149th, and it's like a hub, and a lot of people live there. Um, so I go back a lot, and I, I do a lot of school visits, I do events, um, there, um, but I still see the change, and. I think because I live so far away I'm able to write about it. Like I have the distance. Of yeah, it's it. like
0: it's like the Joyceian James Joyce uh, exile.
1: Right? It's just it's it's I I mean I write so much I don't think I would be able to write about the Bronx if I was if still living there.
0: Well, or, and it's like such a rich, vibrant place, New York. Yeah. And all the you know, I mean it's like there's a lot going on. I I can imagine compared to like like the boring suburban Milieu of my youth.
1: (laughs) But you see, like that to me, I mean, you're talking about like science fiction. To me, the suburban youth, that would be science fiction to me.
0: (laughs) I mean, it would probably seem exotic, but I feel like you could, you would probably be able to process it more quickly than I could process the Bronx. Oh, maybe. Like, I just feel like there's more material. Like, it's it's kind of, it feels like it's more inexhaustible. I mean, I guess to the right talent and the right mind, every place and everything is inexhaustible and art can be found everywhere, but. (laughs) Living in New York with like that rich stew and all that's happening culturally, it just—it's got to give you so much fodder.
1: I mean, it does for sure. Every time I go back, I'm, 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 I'm—it's feeding me like all the stories, every interaction that I have with a person in New York, especially where I where my parents live, it's like oh, this is I'm storing this for later use (laughs) somehow.
0: Was it uh, like you said? You had a relatively cohesive, happy childhood like within that context, yeah, was there a lot of social cohesion, like living in close quarters in the, in the projects and having, um, these, uh, you know, these neighborhoods I would imagine that are, you know, uh, ethnic, mm-hmm. uh, like what Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. is that where you were living? Like, was yeah. there, was there like a strong sense of community, I guess?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I spent most of my youth, Living in the projects until just about when I left to go to college um, I mean I wouldn't say, yeah, there was this, definitely a, a strong sense of community, you know it was a lot just mostly working families just trying to get by um, mostly Puerto Rican, mostly black uh, families and we're all living in this huge building and these buildings are they're massive they're like three buildings connected into one over. 700 units you know um they look very like just talking about they look very science fiction like they look like strangely like prisons like you dystopian know? yeah dystopian that's just very disturbing place to grow up in
0: did you know it when you were growing up
1: no when we first moved in there because they were relatively new buildings we were we were super excited and also they were just, you know, our apartments were, they were duplex, you know, three bedrooms, two baths. They were massive places. So oh, wow. okay. they were like, you know, they, we look anywhere in New York, you cannot get that, that apartment really. So they were great. And we felt really hopeful when we moved in. Um, but I think once I became like, I was a teenager and I, maybe I was starting to see things really clearly, I could see... You can see the cracks, you know how this really doesn't work. I feel living in this kind of big buildings. Um, there you, in, why not? I I don't know. Like I feel like it was just this, a sense of like I don't I don't know the idea behind it. And this is something I've been researching. But the idea of housing projects, um, it just doesn't work if you're just putting so many people in this one building. It doesn't it doesn't seem. It seems really cold, a space. Um, I don't know. And something about living in that, I still have have strange triggers from it. Like I think there, I had just recently read that they were like giving in like $39 billion to renovate the a building that I grew up in. $39 billion to renovate the building because obviously it's old and it's like from 1974 was the first time it was built.
0: Like billion with a B? Yeah. How big is this building? This is
1: big. We're talking like nine, nine nine-story one building, twelve stories, another building, hundreds, hundreds of apartments, thousands of apartments, like so many. Okay. So they need to to rebuild them. They were showing video of it, and I was just like, "Oh, this is so," I don't know. It was disturbing, in a way that I don't. It just made me think of like. I I've saw I've seen so many things while I was living there, growing up there. A lot of violence, you know. What did you see? Oh, like I don't know.
0: Like like horrific, like like people getting shot and stuff. Or
1: I mean, not someone getting shot. You know, people getting beat down. Um, my father getting mugged hundreds of times. Like it was just you know, it was like a given to get mugged.
0: Like at gunpoint.
1: Yeah, right. you know stuff like that. But it was just part of it was just part of my childhood it was part of um I don't know there's something about about that experiment that I don't think really works the the housing project
0: experiment just too many people in one place
1: <laughs> too many people in one place and I'm not, yeah, I'm not. And I don't have the answer for any of that because obviously housing is a problem everywhere, right? We look at LA, problem, problem. Well, I was
0: just reading the other day, there's like, you know, one of the, you know these articles like trend or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's an article that says like 70% of eligible Americans can't afford housing. Yeah. Like it's, it's a huge national problem. Right. Nobody can afford, you know, housing.
1: This is, I mean, that's the thing that, you know, my parents moved to New York, moved to the Bronx, um, leaving Puerto Rico, right? I mean, they didn't have much options on the island, especially for my father. The only option was like working in the sugar plantations. And so then moving to New York was like, that was a big, that was a big step for them, you know? And then moving into the project, that's another big step. It was like closer and closer. The goal always being, we're going to buy a house. That's the goal, right? That's the American dream. So, You know, I don't know if that, how that works really for a lot of people. Like, I don't know. Um, So yeah, I mean, I grew up with seeing a lot of violence and obviously it kind of like works into my fiction, but I always have to remember that there was always also, there was also beauty while I was there. Like I have to remind myself, like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Sure. Hey
0: everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, And how much exposure did you have to other parts of the city? Like I always imagine people growing up in um, New York or the outer boroughs or whatever it is, you know, having such close proximity to Manhattan and all of the museums and the culture. Did you get that? Or was it pretty insular? We were mostly up in the Bronx.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, We were mostly up in the Bronx because it felt even towards the, like I must've been 12 or 13 my sister told me that you have to pay like it was like going to Disneyland to go to Manhattan you would have to pay like a Disneyland fee (laughs) so I believed her because I was like I didn't know that you could just take the train you know (laughs) so it was like a big deal for us to even venture into the city like for us that was the city um so my you know my parents I mean they you know we were always broke so it wasn't like they were taking us we didn't have any business really going to spend money in in manhattan so we would just you know we, would, we they would make do they would take us to the library cuz that was cheap you know free they would take us to the zoo we always knew what days were the free days you know like they just maneuvered ways to make do for us and but to always do
0: fun things that were yeah, yeah.
1: so i mean uh, yeah that was that was great i mean i, I really loved them for that cuz it was But to me, the city was always not a welcoming space for me. Like I wasn't meant to go there.
0: And did you have like, you know how I, I feel like class consciousness dawns on people at different ages based on circumstance, um, like intelligence. I don't know. Like, I feel like it came to me late. Mm. Part of it is a function of just being like cloistered in a suburb and being sort of privileged. You know what I'm saying? Like everyone was sort of the same. I was in Indiana and then like I got to college and it was like oh shit these people are rich (laughs) (laughs) right like like really rich you know Um,
1: i I think that's the similar thing happened to me maybe in high school because in high school i went to school in manhattan so i would travel into the city
0: okay um where'd you go to high school
1: i went to this high school called murray bertram high school the our claim to fame was a q-tip from a trial called quest went to that school he was in my
0: he was in your class? Yeah. Oh, we wow. were in yearbook
1: together. Oh, wow. But yeah, that was the only thing. <laughs> so, um, By but the way,
0: he- I I once was in a conversation and we talking about like hip hop and I, I don't know, like off the cuff, I was like, oh, I love A Tribe Called Quest. And somebody just started laughing at me. They're just like, every white dude loves A Tribe Called <laughs> Quest. And I was like, What? They're good. (laughs) They are. They're
1: actually, they're really good. But I
0: do think there's some truth to it. For some reason, it's like white people like love a tribe. They love to be like, I love a tribe called Quest. I need to branch out.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, so that was the school. And I think that was the first time I I recalled um, being like super aware of, of, of being poor you know it was when someone by chance was able to give me a ride like offer me a ride to my to where i lived and they were going to drop me off in the, in front of the projects and i just remember seeing the, their face change as we approached closer to the projects and they're like you sure you you live here you sure you want us to drop you off here and i was like yeah i'm good you <laughs> know but i could just feel myself shrinking in the car right you know and there would be moments when I would ask people to just drop me off uh, a few blocks, not in front of the, the project. It's like, no, this is good right here. Like right. this building. Yeah. Some random. That building. was
0: sort of like when I was getting dropped off at junior high and it was like, just drop me off. Like here, I'll walk in. Yes.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, the horror.
0: Like, I you don't need what? like my dad to be giving me like thumbs up out the window. <laughs> uh, but so how did you wind up going to this school down in Manhattan? Like, how did that work?
1: I was always trying to get away. I was you, trying to get away from the Bronx.
0: So you did that though? You were like I want to go to this high school. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, my parents didn't they didn't know anything about uh colleges and stuff or high schools or any of that stuff. So I would I was researching. I'm always been that type of person just so, trying to figuring out how I can get by, right? So I found out that school and the school had like computer science. <laughs> you know, so I thought that would be a skill for me. And um yeah, And I enrolled, and I got there.
0: (laughs) What what do you mean you enrolled? Do you apply?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you apply. Was it a
0: private school or a public? No,
1: it's all public. Oh, it is? Yeah. So you just apply. And you figure out which school you want to go into. And you can, part. if
0: you, cause I don't even know how it works. It's like so weird the way schools work, but you have school choice. You can just say, I want to go to this one.
1: Right. I mean, it all depends. Right. And I know I'm sure that all changed cause it's probably different now, but back then you could just apply to the schools that you wanted to like specialized schools. And that was like, I guess the specialized schools cause it was about business that so you could learn about typing
0: Computers. I, f- I find that very touching. <laughs> that like you were like like what, fourteen years old, thirteen years old, and you were like thinking about this stuff.
1: Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, weirdly, yes. I was. I was always trying to figure out how to how to play the game in, in a weird way. Well, and even that kind of factors
0: then. into your book. I mean, I feel like a survival mode. Like a survival is a theme.
1: Yes. Yeah. At all costs. Right.
0: <laughs> but if you, I mean, you know. It feels that way. It's hard not to feel that way. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's always been this way, but it seems like it's getting worse or something. It feels like
1: I don't know. Maybe I sometimes I feel the way you're feeling, but I think it's always been like this. Always. I think it's just um just us looking back, it's like, oh it's hard. Like oh you know, like our parents probably were like, We never had to do that.
0: Well, I was reading an interview you did and I don't know how fake news came up, but you were making a comment about how you're like, look, like fake news isn't new. Uh, why, why are you laughing? Because
1: I, because I, I, I love that quote. <laughs> it's it, that question, made, it was funny to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, but like, like, why don't you, why don't you elaborate on it? Because it, it struck me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it just, it reminded me of all the things that the people in Puerto Rico have to deal with. I remember when I was young, one of the first songs that they taught me was uh, the song that Christopher Columbus uh, discovered Puerto Rico. You know, it's like a nursery kind of can,
0: song. Can we just dispense with Christopher Columbus? <laughs> like he, you know, mark him down in history. He made his boat voyage, but like right. this, this like lionization of him needs to be done away with.
1: I mean, this is you know, this is all everyone's been doing. They still do that in schools. Like it's just
0: ridiculous. And I think there's obviously like a racial component to it, you know. But I also think it's just lazy. Yes. You know what I'm saying it's like it's right. like a neat little story the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Maria you know like you just like you, they they I don't know it's lazy it's lazy teaching at some point we've got to hopefully things are changing I don't know what they've been teaching my daughter I should probably check in
1: <laughs> <laughs> Right my yeah they um I still I they still do I think my kid just comes back with Christopher Columbus uh, coloring you know What things. did you do? Uh you know I I tried to not always be the angry, mo- the angry mom, the angry parent, but sometimes I love sending emails to people yeah. and see seeing everyone.
0: But it's good to be judicious. Like you don't want to overdo it because if you're constantly doing it, then I think the effect maybe diminishes. Exactly. You got to right? pick your spots.
1: <laughs> exactly. And it's it's kind of fun because it's not fun. It's, it's good for me to be able to talk about these things with my kids and just make them aware. Unlike when I was growing up, it took me until, you know high school college when I was aware of any of those things, any of those, you know, fake news kind of situations.
0: Well, and you know, I think too, and uh, I guess I, I should pose it as a question, but the era that we're living in now feels like particularly. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fraught, dismal <laughs> <laughs> uh, upsetting uh, when it comes to like Puerto Rican Mm, mm-hmm. uh, culture in particular, with mm-hmm. what, like the hurricane and the mm-hmm. disaster relief, and that whole you know that whole fiasco, and you know Trump slow-footing it and just insulting everybody. And I mean,
1: he's still doing that. I think he he's he's talking about how we we have some the island has received so much aid, and he no longer wants to give them any aid. But it's not true. And this was just this week.
0: Yeah, and and then like the broader like Latinx community in this country. I imagine is roiling with all that is happening at the border mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the way that he is kind of fanning those flames. So, mm. you know, I don't want to diminish the past and say that things were ever fine, but mm. certainly it's ratcheted up in intensity these past three years. Right. I
1: think for me, I think for me, what I see is that um, unlike other presidents, um, this person is, is not afraid to show how racist he is. He's very vocal, you know? So so any kind of policies or, or, or lack of policies coming from him is just... You know, he's not afraid to say, "Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to help the Puerto Ricans. I'm going to put the kids in, you know, cages. It does not matter. He does not care, and it's great for his base because they don't care either. But maybe past presidents were, you know, a little bit more clever and concealing in the way they treated the island.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's like, it, what do they always say? It's that it used to be dog whistles. <laughs> now it's just like whistles.
1: I know. It's so disturbing. Like I can't. It's like if I fall into that trap of always of getting angry because I, you know, obviously I saw whatever it was that he recently tweeted about Puerto Rico and I just get really into into an uproar and get upset and tweet a lot about it. And um, I have to find other ways of, of being of funneling that anger into something more positive. Either it's either pointing someone to like, here's some money that you could give to people on the island, or it's, here's who you could write to, or those kind of things, instead of it being like, oh, I hate this guy, you racist.
0: Well, you know, yeah, you start to, it starts to become an issue of like inertia at some point where you're just like, you know, you're sort of like spiraling in one place, Yes, yes. you know, and it'd be, you're not being proactive, but boy, it's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you know, the the reality is that a lot of times you're experiencing these emotions in front of your computer (laughs) because that's where most of us are planted, especially writers and you know, Twitter's right there. Mm -hmm. It's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, water cooler.
1: I, you know, I fall into it. I love, I love Twitter. I've been using it for like 10 years, but it is, it's true. I get into that, I fall into that trap of like, if I, tweet this, uh, you know, this angry tweet and everyone retweets it, then obviously I'm doing something, but you're not doing anything. You're just feeding into this anger.
0: Yes and no. I mean, I think there is something to be said for amplifying good information or reasonably good information because there's so much bad out there. Mm. I think it's important. I mean, it's a a form of speaking up. I don't think it's nothing. Mm -hmm. I think if you're just like raging, that's one thing. But like I... I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to make myself feel better for all the political tweets and retweets, but like, I don't think it makes zero difference.
1: No, I mean, that's not, you're you're right. That's not true. Like I'm able to, if, because I have like young people following me or or a lot of, you know, Latinx um, people following me, then they feel comfortable to express themselves as well and they don't feel alone. And so I know I'm making a difference in that sense. So, there, there is that feeling of unity, right? That you're able to express uh, thoughts and ideas that you felt maybe you were unable to do in a public manner. So, that works and that feels great. And I've met a lot of people through that. Um, I just feel maybe even for my own health, <laughs> and maybe it doesn't, you know, doing that in the, in the negative sense doesn't really work
0: for yeah. me. Yeah, no, it could be, I think it can definitely like erode. A feeling of (laughs) (laughs) well-being.
1: Right. like I have to come in sometimes with the positive because if not, I mean, all I want to do is curse all day, and I don't. I, I, I try not. I don't curse on Twitter, so I'm just like I'm trying to keep it. What
0: do okay. you mean you don't curse on Twitter?
1: You know, I, I'm, I write young adult. I try to keep it clean.
0: Oh, right. You know your audience. You got parents on there.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you know, there's librarians following Right.
0: You don't want the librarians to. Be I like,
1: need she, to keep it clean. She's
0: a loose cannon. <laughs> Uh, that would be kind of funny, like a foul-mouthed YA author.
1: I'm sure there are on there, but um, I I keep it. Yeah, I keep, even though if you know me, that's, uh, cursing is probably my third language.
0: <laughs> so let's get to, uh, I want to keep tracing uh, like your biography a bit. And, and I think we were sort of leaving off in high school. You're in high school with Q-tip. <laughs> Right?
1: Yes, in your book class. Why why
0: did you not get in on Tribe? You could have been there. (laughs) Couldn't you have been like a background vocals or something? If only Yeah. If only. You wouldn't know you wouldn't need to be writing these Y A (laughs) books.
1: Exactly, I missed my calling clearly. Um, no, I was just you know just surviving in high school. I was super super shy, so I'm sure Q-tip did not even look my way a
0: second. What was, about like books? Were they factoring in as a, as a young person? Yeah, I
1: mean that was the only thing that was saving me. Really, was reading and and writing in the sense I wasn't writing fiction, but I was just writing um, journals and stuff. But I was just extremely shy until an English teacher told me to um, kind of force me to join the school newspaper because he saw something that I wrote and he thought I had talent, and he was like, you should do this. And I, for whatever reason I said, okay.
0: You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had this kind of conversation on this show where somebody recalls a teacher who told them they had talent and here they are all these years later publishing books it makes a difference. It and so, does. It, you know, I, I think the, the comment that I'd like to make is broader than just like, if you're a teacher, you make sure you compliment your students. Like, I think all of us would be well served if we just complimented each other more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like how often I don't compliment people enough. Like if somebody, even a stranger walks past and like, they have like a cool shirt on, I should just be like, Hey man, cool shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Because it makes them feel good. Right. I like your hair, and like sometimes you do that. Like I think I've tried that before, and sometimes people are like, "What's up, creep?"
1: Well, I've done it. I I was telling that to someone, to a writer. And like, I was just like, you know, you don't have to worry about like this whole sense of like networking, blah blah blah. Just if you're in, see someone on a panel, just say tell them thank you for being on the, like, thank you for your, you know, for being on the panel for what they said, you know, that's all you have to say. Yeah. It's like it's a service thing. Just say, thank you.
0: Just be positive. Right. Make people feel good. Like, but don't be disingenuous. You right. know, it's just like, <laughs> say, like, Don't lie to people, but, you know, but exactly. if like, I think it's like, it's sort of weird how there's like even discomfort, especially when you're talking to people you don't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. Um, to just offer like, like some kind words. If you, if they're sincere. Yeah. Why not? You should do that. I want to do that as like a social experiment, (laughs) see how my life changes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, okay. So you said you were reading Judy Bloom, Essie Hinton. Yes. Those were kind of like, those were touchstone books for you. Mm -hmm. Did you start to think to yourself at that age? Like I want to maybe try this someday was it the dream in your head at that point no
1: that uh, no um to me like being a published author was really uh a, something that only a person of money can do and high education and 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 a person who's white could do like i really didn't believe that that was even a possibility so when someone. did
0: that change for you
1: not until way Way into college, when I first read um, Sandra Cisneros' book. And then I read Junot Diaz's collection, the short story collection, um, Drown. And when I read Juno Diaz's Drown, that was when I was like, oh, I could do this. I can probably do this. Why? It took a long time after. But because he, was, he felt like he was writing about people that I knew. Like it really felt like family, even though he was talking about, you know, Dominicans and New Jersey, I really did feel like he was like writing about people in my backyard. So, um, yeah, so I was like, oh, like that was like really the first time I felt like a, a seed was planted and then it would take years later for me to finally over overcome whatever fear I had about writing.
0: But so where did you go to college?
1: I went to Binghamton University upstate.
0: Okay. Like four and,
1: hours away. And maybe.
0: how did that happen? Like, cause, you know, you, your family probably couldn't send you, I would imagine. No, I and did
1: the same thing. I just uh, did the research <laughs> and applied and find out, uh, make sure that I was getting uh, scholarships and, you know, financial aid and all that stuff.
0: You did it all on your own? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. My wife was kind of that way. <laughs> like she sort of like had to do a lot of that research on her own.
1: Yeah, you just get it done. I mean, but I you still also do have it now. To, you
0: have to have the awareness. Yeah. Like a lot of kids in your situation wouldn't have researched the high school and mm-hmm. researched the cuss. So you, you have that. Like, what is that? Is it just survival, Like native intelligence? Right. Like- Maybe it
1: was like drive or like, I knew that I wanted to get away from my circumstances, my circumstances being living in the Bronx or living in the projects. So I knew I had to do that somehow and- Education was the only way out. So because my parents were like, they more than wanted me to do that, you know, obviously, but they didn't they didn't have the tools to figure out the system. So it was really, on you know, up to me to figure it out. And I was also my sister was older, but my sister left um, left the house um or you know a little bit when she was a little bit younger than me i mean when i was younger she left the house and then so i was really i didn't really have anyone to like oh can you tell me how to do it you know figure this out so i just had to figure it out and And, just do it
0: and you did Mm -hmm. and you got to binghamton
1: i got to binghamton and that was when um it all changed no i'm kidding that was when i really realized how like oh man i'm broke (laughs) Like I could tell the difference because you're in the dorm and you see people with money, you know. And it was I was you know dealing with things that I didn't have to deal with before. I mean, you know, I grew up with a lot of people of color, and then I went to Binghamton, and there were few of us.
0: Okay, because see, yeah, I can't even like what I, I'm thinking of. Uh, Bennington, which is in Vermont, right. Binghamton is like is that it, S, it, state a state university? Yeah, of New York? it's a
1: state university. It's like four hours away um, upstate um their claim to fame was that rod sterling went lived there grew oh, he, up there
0: he did yeah the twilight, zone, twilight zone which is making a it's uh a like it's reemerging.
1: so he, it's very twilight zone y looking the town is very what
0: is it like woods and trees yes. and okay
1: dark like under darkness like what is happening behind these closed doors <laughs> is it pretty i mean there's some aspects of it is pretty yes But it felt there was definitely something nefarious happening in that town. I don't know what that was.
0: Bodies in those woods. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So you get to college. I'm imagining it was a pretty big adjustment, like Mm -hmm. culturally, socially. Yes. You were like academically, you were you were prepared. I would imagine fairly well. Yeah, okay. And so at that point, is that when you start to think about? Like, like, did you major in English or?
1: I did, and I majored in history. But I did start thinking about it in the, in the sense that I started, like, there was the first time I was actually reading, reading like, fiction critically, in a way. And I'm um, reading, it was the first time I read Toni Morrison, the first time I read, like, maybe Octavia Butler, or, like, I was aware of them. And so... I was just, it was, it was the first time of just being able to look at fiction critically instead of it being as an escape. It became more of like, oh, maybe, maybe I could do this. I don't know.
0: Do you have any writers in your family or people that you like, you look at and you think like, oh, like they, that's where I get it from. Storytellers.
1: Yes. My father, my father used to, um, recite poetry when um, he would memorize them and recite poetry in, in his church, which he still does. So I, I remember that being like a big deal, like him just standing up in front of a crowd of church people and just reciting poems. Not that he would, not poems that he wrote, but just from artists. I don't remember who, but yeah, that was a big deal. So he was always very kind of theatrical in that sense, or maybe, you know closet theater person or closet poet um so yeah him for sure he was the only person that I was closest but it wasn't something that anyone did like writing it's not you know you learn how to type and, and get a job in an office right
0: right <laughs> um and you like did you have like a wild i guess you're you kind of buttoned up as a high school kid right did you yeah. did you even go wild
2: I
1: went wild when I got to college. Okay. That was when I discovered drinking. And that's when I I mean I'm I'm pretty open about my alcoholism. I've been sober for like 20 years. Almost. Yeah, you
0: wrote about this in Lenny Letter. Yeah. The now defunct Lenny Letter. I right? know,
1: which is kind of s- sad because I, I really like that essay. <laughs> but yeah, it was, um, so I wrote about that. But it was my first time when I really discovered uh, how bad I was when it came to drinking because I, I, cause I felt so isolated and so outside of anything that I ever expected, you know, what college life was going to be like. So the only way I could deal with it was through drinking. Hmm. So I drank a lot.
0: So you were kind of a loner in college?
1: No, I was, I mean, I wasn't a loner, but I, because I was in, in social places, I would compensate whatever uncomfortableness I felt by drinking, Yeah, you know, heavily.
0: I think a lot of us did that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we're generationally somewhat close yeah i don't know i can't tell how old you are but i'm in my my 40s um and i think back like i was reading another article just recently about uh the changing cultural trends around drinking like Mm. how millennials are like it was like millennials often just say they don't want to drink socially oh and i think that's a good trend yeah but like in my generation especially growing up in the midwest like binge drinking like Mm -hmm. that whole scene it's just absurd. Yeah. But I, I remember feeling, like, for people who have any kind of, like, social anxiety or for whom, like, parties are, can be, like, like overwhelming, mm-hmm. which I think is a lot of people. Yeah. You know? I mean, I
1: still feel, when I'm in social situations, I'm just like, whoa. Well, I don't, I mean, I, I don't drink, but I'm just like, it's a little too much for someone who is a shy person to, like, constantly be on. It takes up a lot. Or just to like
0: know what to do. It's like just good to like have something to hold, and be like, right. like, oh, you know. Otherwise, you're just standing there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like same thing with cigarettes. Like everyone's like outside. At least you're like looking like you're busy. Like, oh, you know. Or, or there's like a smaller group outside that's all like, you right?
1: Know, you can bond about that. Yeah. Right? You're like, oh,
0: it's, why are we smoking in the freezing cold? This is maybe the dumbest thing.
1: <laughs> but I feel that way. It is that feeling of like, oh, I want to. What can I do that makes me feel like I, I'm doing something? That looks sort of cool. Yeah, so I'm like, oh yeah, I'll like drink. N-
0: Needlepoint isn't going to cut it <laughs> in a like, party at the keg party. <laughs> but you know, there have to be better ways. But for whatever reason, generationally, culturally, like especially on you know at college campuses, that's that tends to be
1: that's that's the way to go. I feel
0: well, but there's also like I remember like there's a like you talk about social anxiety, but if mm-hmm. you're being honest about that stage of life in particular, it's like sexual anxiety mm-hmm. or like relational anxiety. Like I think for me and I think for a lot of people, it's like you want to get like the nerve up to talk to somebody right? and alcohol like supposedly helps that. But then it also just makes you, you know, say and do stupid shit.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I definitely felt a way more courage when I had alcohol in me, but it just, it didn't last very long that courage. I mean, cause I wasn't drinking too to act normally i was drinking to you know, until i blacked out you know and it was very quickly when that first that started happening to
0: me you started blacking out mm-hmm. like almost right away
1: yeah yeah um so yeah i mean the college was strangely just filled with that
0: do you did you have to drink a lot to black out
1: no, I mean, because I'm like a small person, <laughs> I was right. small back then. So no, and I didn't really eat that much. So I was just like, it didn't take much for me to drink.
0: <laughs> You're like, I'm fucking starving. <laughs> I know.
1: I mean, like it literally, like I would just, I would look for people. This is a sad thing. I was just like, who, who do I know who have, who would have food, who would be cooking? And I would show up to their house knowing that they were going to invite me to have food, to have dinner.
0: Smart. I know. You got good instincts.
1: <laughs> Surviving.
0: Yeah. <laughs> What, what, what uh, got you sober? Like when, when did that happen?
1: I moved to California. That was what happened. I moved here like 20 years ago and, and I couldn't continue doing what I was doing. Everything was felt like it was falling apart. Like my family, my life was falling apart. I didn't have kids then, but, um, I just couldn't continue like lying about it. Cause I was really good at keeping it together.
0: How much were you drinking? Were you like getting up in the morning and having a drink?
1: No, no, I was good, and like I was always like a weekend drinker, but my weekend started on Thursdays, and then, and I would always hide it from my husband, so I would take shots, and I would just like you know, mouthwash and all that kind of stuff, so he never really knew what was happening until until I couldn't do it anymore.
0: Until like you're like, why do you have a lampshade on your head?
1: <laughs> he was like, why aren't these bottles always empty? i like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I
0: don't know. <laughs> Do you ever like refill them with like water or anything? I
1: wouldn't refill them, but I would just be like, we have to go get some more. And he's like, but didn't we just go? <laughs> like, weren't we just buying all these alcohol bottles before? Yeah, no, I don't know what happened.
0: So did you just go cold turkey or did you have to get like, uh, did you go AA or help?
1: Yeah, I had to go to AA.
0: Okay. Yeah. I know people are like have mixed feelings about talking about that, so I don't want to ask you to divul- divulge it, like anonymity is
1: Oh yeah. Part I mean I deal. I feel like it took me a long time for me to even write that letting letter essay. Um so I'm way more open about about doing that now.
0: Did your family have an awareness? Like I guess when did you let them know or did they know?
1: Um when did I let them know? I I think Not long after that, Lenny letter. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No,
0: I'm kidding. By the way, here's a link.
1: (laughs) No, um, they soon found out afterwards that I told them maybe like a year later. I was like, I don't drink anymore. And then, but no one talks about it. It's not like a conversation anyone ever wants to have.
0: By the way, that's actually kind of a great way to do it. Like get sober. Like let a year, make sure you're sober, you got like a year under your belt and then be like, by the way, I was an alcoholic or, you know.
1: (laughs) Right. Like I'm not, you know, I don't drink. Right. And then everyone, and of course, because it's family, it's all gossip. So everyone's like, your, your story is told to everyone. So then everyone's aware that you're not drinking.
0: Yeah. But that takes the pressure off. (laughs) Yeah. Once that conversation is had, then people just know, because like, this is the thing is that like, I feel like there is for drinkers, for people who aren't necessarily struggling with addiction, but who drink socially. Mm Mm-hmm. Like if you go out socially and you're like, I don't want to have a drink. Everyone's like, well, why not? It's so weird. Yeah. And you feel like this pressure. You're like the you're like the bummer, you know? (laughs) Right. But once you're like, oh, you know, I'm sober. Everyone's like, oh, okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, for the most part, uh, unless you have a drinking problem, then you, you want to make sure that the people around you are drinking just as heavily, which is something I used to do.
0: (laughs) But come on.
1: (laughs) Why? Why aren't you drinking? (laughs) Uh, You know, what's wrong with you? I used to do that all the time because nobody wants to drink by themselves.
0: Right. So, when you're
1: an alcoholic anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, no. You know, like you want some company. Yeah. In <laughs> <But> your misery. <laughs> what is, uh, this, this, this went on for like what, four years, five years?
1: Um, My alcoholism?
0: Yeah. Like the drinking period. No. Early.
1: It went on for like, I don't know, 10, 20 years.
0: Oh, it did. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It went on for a long time. Did, until... you, did you
0: drink in high school?
1: Very briefly. I think. I the, my first drink was probably when I was ten, but that was like family occasions because you know my whole, everyone there was always a party somewhere someone's having some birthday party so everybody was always drinking, so um, so yeah so the thing was with my family is because it was such a family affair I felt safe drinking with them. Until I was outside of that you know space, like going to college, I didn't have my safety net of You're my like cousins. I'm, or... in the,
0: I'm in the twilight zone.. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, I don't know." So I didn't feel safe, so my drinking got worse, you know. And then, yeah, and then I, I would drink a lot in New York until I moved out here, and I couldn't, I couldn't drive. And this was before you know lift. You know, there's calves, but it was just like that feeling of like, oh, I couldn't drive, so then I would just stay home and drink. I wouldn't go what do you out mean as you much. you couldn't drive? Like I didn't feel safe driving my car while I was drinking.
0: Well, that's such a, that elite, like what a responsible drunk you were. <laughs> like, <right>? I
1: know. <laughs> I just knew that I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna kill somebody if I did. Yeah. I was just like too afraid.
0: So, what was the relationship? Between your drinking and your creative life, I imagine you probably weren't writing as much. Or no, it- I
1: would. I didn't. I didn't write. I mean, that's not true. I was. My background is in journalism, so I had a job. That was my job, and my job was to write entertainment profiles and fashion copy and all all these fashion stuff. And um, so but I would always function. I, I functioned really well. Like I was just always deadlines met. My deadlines did my work. Write as much as I could, and then. When it was time to, you know, party or whatever, it was Thursday. The great thing is like, because I was a journalist and I worked in entertainment, I was always going out.
0: Yeah. There's like, (laughs) it's nothing but, especially when you're like in your twenties or whatever, it's nothing but like social. Yeah. Some of these jobs, like that's like a function of the job.
1: Right. You're supposed to go to some club or whatever. There's some party and you're drinking all the time. It's all free. It's great.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, if you're not, you're sort of, it's sort of like maybe bad for your career.
1: Right. You just, you know, yeah, exactly. Right. That's,
0: that's how I feel. I'm like a vegetarian. I've been in like work context where you're like out with other dudes <laughs> and they're just like, I'm going to get a steak, have a bourbon. And you're just like, I'm vegan.
1: <laughs> they're like, why are you I'm here? i
0: have a pinot grigio. And they're just
1: like, oh, <laughs> See, you can't be a player if you're
0: doing that. I know. It's like, but this is a weird, pr- like it's such a weird pressure. Like who cares? Like eat, right. what, eat what you want, drink what you want. Right. You know, kind like, to fit some sort of like mold. Um. So, okay. So I want to get to like the pivot point where you make the leap and decide you're going to try to write books oh. and you actually start taking it seriously. And mm. I, I'm assuming like you start working on like a schedule and yeah. doing the things that writers do. So like what, when did that happen, and then what was there something that prompted it that you can point to?
1: I was starting to, you know, kind of like jump to whatever magazines there are so few in L.A. But I was like, oh, I worked at E Entertainment and then online, and I started doing some magazine, you know, Los Angeles magazine, all this stuff. Um, but during that time, I would take like UCLA Extension writing program, like uh, creative writing programs, and I would just take really the basic class, like intro to fiction (laughs) it was great or intro to creative writing and i would just start from there and i would just take a class every semester or something um and just start writing a little bit um and then one of the magazines folded because they always do (laughs) and that's when i had a free time and i decided i was going to write a a novel and i was going to be a young adult
0: but when did that call like when did you first because i know you loved books as a kid and i know Mm -hmm. you you were a history major in college, but like when were you like, you know what, like I have stories to tell, like this mm. is something I want to try. Like, when did that start to occur to you?
1: I have to, and you know, I hate to bring it back to Juno Diaz, but I was on a, on a cruise, which is like torture. Oh, wait.
0: You said that it was like Juno, you're reading that collection.
1: Right, it was a collection, but it was also like after that collection, it was his book, the Oscar Wilde book, and I read that on this cruise, which was torture. For anybody to go on a cruise, but anyway, so, <laughs> I agree. By right, the way, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but I did, and I read his book there, and then I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this." Like after that, I was just like, "All right, enough. <laughs> I'm gonna try to write a book. Like I'm gonna try."
0: You know what that makes me think? It's like it makes me think how important representation is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like because you were seeing yourself in it, right? And when you see yourself in reflected in art, whether it's a book or it's a movie whatever it is, it makes your the scope of possibilities widen. It's true. It's probably a lot harder. And it's something I take for granted, or I, at least I used to. Yeah. You just don't, you know, if you don't see yourself up on the movie screen or you don't see yourself on TV or you don't see yourself in books, it probably has a limiting effect.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal. Like I I really did feel like Juno Diaz was capturing something that, that I was so familiar with, like I grew up in. And so I was just like, no, he could do it. I could do it. He's from Jersey. Who cares? I could do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome, though. Yeah.
1: So that was when I decided I was going to try.
0: Did you ever meet him and like get to talk to him about it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like, and there's like, like, this is like dicey because I don't have the facts straight, but there's like a controversy. And then he was like, was he cleared? Do we know the facts on this? Like,
1: yeah. um, I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little just no comment. No comment.
0: Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably smart.
1: <laughs> but you know, he, he I, you know, I won't lie. He's—he's he's maybe one of of like three Latino um, authors who who really, really pushed me into writing. Like it's maybe him, Sandra Cisneros, and then young adult authors like Meg Medina and Matela Peña. And those are the two that I know, you know, have been doing it for a while and are. Are great.
0: Latinx authors in the the YA space? Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So then you get started. Yes. And what does that look like?
1: It was me doing this. this, Al Watt is a local author and he does this thing called the 90 day novel. And that was me doing uh, a draft in 90 days.
0: Oh, yeah. You know who else did that? Is uh, Otessa Mashveg. Oh, really? She wrote Eileen. Huh. I think after like it was kind of like a this self enforced experiment. Right. She had the book and was like, "Let me try this." And right. like Eileen, which was like this kind of it was Booker Prize nominated, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, was the result. But, wow. Um, but you took a class.
1: Yeah, he was like did like lo- like workshops, you know, like from his house and stuff, and um, yeah, and I would go in and, and take the class and just like really not sure what I was doing, but I loved the way he the way he conducted his course and so it really just made me kind of think of like how to be disciplined in writing every single day um and producing something at the you know even if it's trash <laughs> if it's like a first draft is trash
0: i'm going to start a workshop in my garage called the uh the 9000 day novel
1: <laughs> i'm sure people will enlist <laughs>
0: yeah. next 30 years of your life ladies and gentlemen i'm here for you um, but that, but that's, I mean, this is what I think, like there is a resourcefulness and a like scrappiness and, um, uh, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for, but I admire the way that you sort of find your way
1: um, and it goes I guess all the I'm, way
0: back to when you were a kid. Yeah.
1: I guess I'm always determined. Like Did, I'm
0: like but you also like sort of figured like you're just like I'm going to go to UCLA extension take these courses I'm going to learn it I'm going to go do these things <laughs> a lot of people kind of stay frozen or never take the step
1: right like I I and I meet so many emerging writers who are like oh I have to they have to have a certain thing right you know like the formula is like I have to have the right desk I have to have the right laptop I have to you know be in a certain you know fellowship or something I'm just like no you just you just have to sit down and do the work there's no way around it you just have to do it. And I really, you know, sometimes I really believe it's every day. You have to just sit down.
0: How many hours a day do you work? Like, would you have like a set schedule? Do you have like a r- ritual that you go through?
1: No, just I try to work like two hours a day. Not that long. I mean, I work longer usually, but if I could just put in some of my words in two hours, I'm okay.
0: Do you count words? Mm-hmm. You do. Yeah. What do you try to get? Do you have like a daily goal? Do you like, like. To-
1: yeah, depending. But I try not to do no more than. Like a, maybe a 1,000 words a day, maybe 700.
0: On a good day, you can get a 1,000 words in two hours. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's not great words. <laughs> it's You know, it's words. <laughs> but it's something.
0: But you can fix it in the edit.
1: Exactly. I mean, the thing is that it's all going to be fixed. It's like it's all rewrite anyway. So if I could produce a draft, and I've done it twice... Uh, a draft in 90 days and i know i have something to work off of
0: is that like the template that you basically use for your books is the 90 day novel
1: i do but i mean i haven't done it again like i did it for the the first two like you know the education marco sanchez and dealing in dreams i did it in those drafts in 90 days but um i don't think i'll be doing that again
0: okay so 90 days dealing in dreams uh your latest book you write a draft yes how long how many words total
1: must I mean, I'm sure it was probably like 55,000. Okay. Not, I mean, it wasn't super long. But still. But 55.
0: That's good for three months of uh, work. Yeah. Okay. How yeah. shitty was that draft?
1: Well, I'll tell you that I wrote it six years ago because I remember because that uh, may be longer. It was like seven years because it was my kid was just born and I was like determined to write a, a draft of a, of a novel. Because everyone kept on saying, oh, you're not, now you got two kids. You're probably, you're not going to be a published author. You know, they were just kind of giving me that like vibe of like, well.
0: So you had one kid. Had one kid. No books published.
1: No books. Nothing.
0: You got another kid on the way. Yes. You're you're harboring this dream to be a writer. (laughs) Yes.
1: And then I, and then I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write 90 days. I'm going to write this like violent young adult book (laughs) about girl gangs and uh, I'll do it in 90 days and that's i was like nursing my kid
0: why a violent book about girl gangs what was did you was there like some inspiration or like some like nugget that you were drawing on
1: no i mean i think definitely like the anger of like these roles that sometimes women place on other women about what they can and can't do when it comes to like their careers or whatever so or being a mother what does a mother you know what does a mother look like right. um I just wanted i was anger you know i was filled with anger with that but i also was like i read a cockroach orange and i love a cockroach orange when i I read it in high school i love that book why it was so it was so violent and um i loved that he used all this like slang i was like I, i i could fall into that world very quickly i understood it um even though it was like set in a totally different world i was just like oh i understand these people for some reason and um and I just kept thinking of what it would look like if it were, like, Latinx girls, like, living that life. You know, what does it look like to, like, incorporate that kind of violent traits um, and trying to survive? So I wanted to write about that. And I had a, I had a really good time writing it. And then, you know, 90 days, uh, like, six, six years, I, I put it away. I didn't look at it for six years, seven years until um, I had a two-book deal. And then I told them I had this book and then I had to rewrite, rewrite, rewrite.
0: So you had a, like a, basically a messy first draft mm-hmm. and you, and you put it in a drawer for six years.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would take it out once in a while in workshops and, you know, do a chapter here and, and, you know, and get notes. But I would, um, I was just, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for it. Huh. And then I, and then, and then, yeah. And then I told them I had a book.
0: And by that point you think like circumstances in your life had changed and your skills as a writer had developed and like sometimes it's these things just need to incubate some
1: right like i feel like when i read it again it totally it still resonated but then i there was something else there was other things that that was that was happening during the time when i was rewriting it you know like you know trump got elected the opiate crisis you know all these things were like brewing you know and so then these are all the things that i was reading and digesting so then it made sense obviously if i'm going to rewrite it like oh where did all these these things that maybe i was writing 6 years ago is still relevant but i could really punch in other things that was like percolating in my head
0: Right.
1: So it made sense. Um, I was, whenever I would bring it up in workshop, people were like down with the, with the world. Like (laughs) workshop at UCLA? Yeah. Or just even local workshops or writers groups that I would like participate in. Like people were like, oh, this is, I want to see what happens in this world. I'm like, okay. So I knew I had something. I just wasn't like, it just needed a really strong editor to like rework it.
0: So you have this book in the drawer. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you you set to work on another one.
1: I was working with the first one, like the um, the education of Margot Sanchez, that okay. came out two years ago. Yeah. And so
0: you finished Margot Sanchez, mm-hmm. and then you go out to find an agent, or did yeah. you? Yeah, you did. Yes. And how did that process go?
1: It was okay. It was, um, you know, it's because I'm that type of person that I want results right away. It, it seemed like it took a long time, but it didn't.
0: How it, long did it take?
1: It didn't take anything like. Like, I don't know, six months or something? Like, four months? It's like nothing. But I didn't know anything. Like, publishing is all about slow. (laughs) Yeah, it's like
0: hurry up and wait. (laughs) Yes,
1: it's very. Especially
0: when your book goes out on submission or you're waiting for somebody to read. You're just like, oh my God. I
1: know. I'm like, to me, I'm like, I'm so instant and yeah that's not the publishing world but yeah it was you know i i submitted to i had my strategy cuz i'm a nerd like that i had a spreadsheet and i picked uh. my people of who i wanted to send out how did you pick them I, I, I did my research like I always do, and I I would go to the back of books and look at acknowledgements uh-huh. of books that were similar or people that I loved. Make sure that, oh, who's their agent? Okay.
0: Because they always thank their agent in yeah. the acknowledgements. <laughs> Smart, do. but that's like the best piece of advice. It's like, you know, <laughs> if you're looking for an agent, like, well, A, what is your book and like what category would it fall right. into? And then B, who writes similar
1: exactly. kinds of
0: work and who represents those people? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the way I did it. Like, I was like, oh, I love. For example, not that I, we had the same agent, but I love Matt de la Pena's work, so I would make sure who's the, who's his agent. I love Meg Medina's work, who's his agent, and I was just following their careers and just like, okay, who are they talking to?
0: And who'd you wind up with?
1: I ended up with Eddie Schneider from Jabberwocky Literary Agency, and they do a lot of fantasy and science fiction stuff, but also my you know young adults and dystopia. Of, yeah, it's they're perfect because I was like I knew. I was ch- like, I was gambling in a sense that I was like, I have the education of Margot Sanchez. The coming of age story is set in the Bronx. But I knew in the back of my head that I had dealing in dreams. So I was like, I think he would be a good fit.
0: Agents love it when you have two books. <laughs> Like, do you know what I'm saying? When you come to them and you're like, I got two manuscripts, that <laughs> means you're, I think, but I think it proves like, okay, this is not a one trick pony. Right. And be like, if the first one doesn't sell, we'll have like another, another shot.
1: Right. They want to know that you're, I mean, for the most part, most of them, they want to know that you're in it for the long haul and that you're going to be producing. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: so, um, yeah, so it was good. And then he, it worked out great. And Eddie's awesome. He gets what I what I want to do.
0: So you wrote Margo Sanchez, you work with, uh, Eddie. Yeah. You refine the manuscript, mm-hmm. you go out with it, yeah. and you wind up getting a two-book deal. Yeah. How long was it on submission before it sold?
1: Um surprisingly not long. Um because I was lucky that during that course I was going to Clarion, which is this six-week um writing workshop in San Diego. Uh Kelly Link has gone through it, Octavia Butler went through it. Um all these big name Tick Chang. So I was just like, I applied to that. And during the course of six weeks, my book was an on submission, And at the end of the six weeks, that's when I got uh, Simon and Schuster.
0: Damn. And so were you working on uh, dealing in dreams at that workshop?
1: I did. I, I workshopped that, uh, a first chapter in there hmm. and everybody was down.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So you get the, like, where were you when you got the news that your book had sold and you got a two book deal?
1: Yeah, I was, um, I was in San Diego almost fin- wrapping it up, but it was a weird, it was a weird experience because everyone there was um, a merging author or emerging merging writer, author. So I kept it really quiet. And I also, I was really strange. Like I felt really shy about the news.
0: You could have just like done an end zone dance, just been like, Hey I guys, been- <laughs> Hey workshop people, guess what I just did.
1: I was just like, everybody was in the struggle and I didn't want to be the one that was not like, not, I was always in the struggle. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Have fun
0: with your first draft guys.
1: It's terrible. No, they I love those guys. So they know they know.
0: So you didn't tell anybody?
1: No, I kept it quiet. Did you, I, my did family you, knew. did you cry? No, I didn't cry. You know, when I cried, and I'll be real about it, I cried. I just want to know
0: when you cried. Yeah, that's, you know, know, it's important.
1: (laughs) Um, I cried when it was in a library, when I could see it in the library. That was when I, because it felt real to me, because the libraries were the only places I could go to. So when it was up on the shelf, I was like, okay, it's real.
0: Now it's real. Yeah. (laughs) The librarian's like, who is this woman? Sobbing. Crying. Yeah. Sobbing in the YA section.
2: Exactly.
0: (laughs) So can I, I want to ask you a, a sort of like out of sequence, but I want to ask you about the composition of YA books. Uh, like there's, like, I, I think of them and my first, uh, uh, instinct is to think like, well, they're, they're more plot driven mm-hmm. than typical literary fiction, but mm-hmm. there's, is there genre, is there a delineation between like genre YA and like literary YA?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I'm sure there is, um, I feel like I've read, I read so much of it that there's really, it all, it goes all over the place. Like you could find, um, you know, the typical kind of coming of age girl meets boy or girl meets girl, whatever it is, you know, all those kind of things. And they're fun and they're quick. Um, and kids love those. And then you could have these heavy, hard fantasy adventure kind of books. And then you find, like, some experimental stuff that I really love. Like, for example, um, Alana K. Arnold is a local author. She lives in, I want to say Huntington. And she wrote um, this book called Damsel. And it's just a a flip on the whole uh, knight rescuing the damsel in distress. And it's just it's. Talks about what does that look like when a a girl who just all of a sudden meets a stranger who's supposed to like now I saved you and now you're gonna marry you we're gonna marry and and you know it's like this disturbing kind of concept of like what does that really look like? You Wait, know? is it a, like a horror? It's almost like a horror, but it's just like a fairy tale retelling of that kind of like damsel in distress and how that's that concept is 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 a, is a complete lie. Well, <laughs> what I was
0: gonna say this is like reminding me of Christopher Columbus for some. Right.
1: (laughs) Like it's just like that flip of like, oh, this is disturbing. And this is the reality of what that looks like.
0: When he shows up on the beach, it's not good.
1: (laughs) Right. It's not like, oh, and then they welcomed him, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) This
0: is when the like raping and pillaging began
1: Exactly. So this is what and her book, Damsel, plays on that, and it's so great because then young kids are able to like let's have a conversation of what that looks like and what does consent look like.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um and so it's stuff like that and also uh, um, there's another book that I just read recently called uh, from Randy Rebe called Peculiar Saint of Nothing. And he's writing about um, being a Filipino, uh, American-born, and traveling. The story is about uh, this boy who finds out his cousin who lives in the Philippines was killed in the drug war. Like, you know, pre- uh, Presidente Duterte, I think his name is, is like an insane dictator who believes that there are no addicts that everyone should be like killed or you know like horrible stuff like he's doing these things and this is a
0: real thing this, this is, is not, a real thing this is thing. not like ya land
1: no this yeah. is like and so this this YA author wrote about that like in an, in a young adult book and talking about these bigger themes you know about drugs and and, and drug programs and being privileged being from the u.s and I was just like, this is good. This is good stuff. You know, it it could be, it could range from all, all kinds of things, which I love.
0: Yeah. And it's like, it's not such a bad strategy to like take for example, like a clockwork orange and then like recontextualize it or to take like these myths, like these Mm -hmm. cultural myths that were sort of raised on and, you know, finding ones that are basically horseshit and (laughs) flipping them around.
1: I love those. Those are my favorite kind of books. Cause I, because kids are still being taught these things in school. You know, we're, we're still reading, you know. Uh, Who killed a mockingbird? Like, can we let's let's introduce some new text in that. If we're gonna have to read that book, let's introduce some new text. If you're gonna read The Outsiders, why don't we read A Dealing in in Dreams and have a conversation about it?
0: How how, how have like the books? Like, I imagine every once in a while you'll dip back into Judy Bloom or you'll dip back into Essie Hinton. Right? Have those books aged?
1: I still love The Outsiders. <laughs> I still do. I mean, Judy Bloom is still writing now. Yeah. She's amazing. I don't, I don't, I'll probably cry if I were to meet her, actually. <laughs>
0: we should get that. We got to arrange that. <laughs> Let's do that now. Yeah, actually, she's right outside. We're going <laughs> to bring be her amazing. in. I want to see you, I want to see you weep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she I mean, yeah, she, she was huge for me as a kid. Like Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, Super oh, yes. Fudge, Freckled Juice.
1: <laughs> all those. I read all of them.
0: Trying, what other ones were there?
1: And then she, you know, and then she was doing all her, um, all her teenager stuff. Like, um, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret.
0: I gave my daughter for Christmas. She's eight. Uh huh. Because I'm, I'm like, I'm not dialed into uh, young adult literature, uh-huh. you know. And I was just like, I want her, I want, her, but I want her to read. So I got her one of these like box sets of Judy Bloom Uh huh. And I come into her room one night, and she's a big reader, and she's sitting there just weeping.
1: What was she reading?
0: I don't know. She's like, Santa Claus isn't real. I'm like, why am, am I going to get my period? Oh like, my God. I'm, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> my wife it's is like, all... what did you do?
1: It's like all the big things. <laughs> oh my goodness. I loved
0: it. I know. I mean, it's good. I just maybe like, maybe gave her a book that was like a little bit, a little bit too, too much for yeah. her age, but got to learn sometime kid. <laughs> <laughs> You'll thank me later. Um, so now you've got, but you've published more than two books, right? No, these are two books. Why, um, did I, why did I see multiple? Maybe I was looking at a different. I was looking at a list, and
1: and then I had many more books. I God, don't know. I wish.
0: Yeah, you wish. <laughs> so it's Mar- uh, Margaret Sanchez.
1: Yeah, Margot Sanchez. The Education of Margot Sanchez was the first one, and then Dealing in Dreams. And I have a third book, but the, it hasn't been announced yet.
0: Is it? Is it got a publication deal, or is it going to yeah. go out? Oh, yeah, it uh,
1: it'll come out next year, fall 2020.
0: Does it have a title? Can we divulge such things?
1: Um, the title is, I think it's sensitive, but the title is, um, I could tell you it's Fierce and Eury, and it's a retelling of the Greek myth Orpheus and, U- and Eurydice.
0: Okay. Did, that, did you read that as a kid? Yeah. All right.
1: But did you ever see the movie um, Black Orpheus? It's a Brazilian film. No. And it's a take on on the Greek myth. What and, is
0: the Greek myth? I don't even know what the myth oh, is. Oh,
1: the Greek myth is about, um, they fall in love. Um, uh, Orpheus is a poet, renowned poet, you know, can seduce anyone. And he falls in love with Eurydice. And on their wedding day, she falls in a vat of vipers and dies and is sent to the underworld and um orpheus um decides that he's going to convince the gods that he can bring her back up to to the real world so he goes and travels to the underworld to save her and tries to seduce the you know the gods into releasing her back into the real world with his poetry
0: and now this is going to be like a ya book
1: yeah It's going to be awesome.
0: (laughs) It's quite a prom.
1: Exactly. (laughs) The things people will do. Yeah, I'm excited. That'll be fun.
0: And do you find like your experience of interacting with your readers? I imagine that's got to be really gratifying Mm -hmm. when young people get excited by your work. It's exciting when anyone gets excited by anything that you write. (laughs) It's true. But like I guess that this is a two-part question because I mentioned at the top of our conversation how YA is a generally speaking, a bigger market. Mm -hmm. Uh, These books tend to sell better, though it's not always the case.
1: Right, right.
0: Um, But like, has that proven relatively true for you? And then secondly, like, what is the like the publication and tour and events process like for you like you I think you touched briefly on like doing events and reading at schools and mm-hmm. stuff but I just love to hear like what that's what that part of it, it you know is
1: Yeah I mean it's not all not for all YA authors but I know for me I like to go to school do school visits I do school presentations and when I have a when a book out like for example for dealing in dreams I've been traveling the past like 2 or 3 weeks um all over doing school visits and library visits and just speaking to young kids, high schools, middle grade schools. And we just, for the most part, talk about my journey as an author, but also just anything. Like I think I was I was in Seattle yesterday and we were talking about James Baldwin. <laughs> and it was great.
0: Just do a screening of a clockwork orange.
1: <laughs> I would love that, <laughs> even though I'm sure most teachers would not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but James baldwin's great
1: I know it was it, for me it was it was great for me because I was able to reread uh if Beale Street could talk, and i hadn't read that in ages, and I was just like it's so it's so good it's so relevant it how does he up. do
0: it yeah it hold, like it's like timeless you know yeah. like, uh, this is not going to age at no. all.
1: and it's oh, so relevant also oh, relevant and it was great to speak to the young kids because they had just finished reading it and we were just talking back and forth about what what it was about new york about the city life about obstacles for young people who are in love and it was really fun i love it I love doing those things.
0: That's awesome. Would you have like like a super memorable exchange you've had with a young reader before? You ever had like a like a young girl come up to you just like, you know, like, I'm mean, I'm picturing some like nerdy kid who's like got the literary bug. <laughs> Do you see that ever? Can you pick I that love, out in the crowd? Oh
1: yeah, I I was in um where was I? I think it was in in maybe I was in Washington. I forgot, but um, I was doing a uh, reading or whatever, and this young girl. Young girl, and she had like really short hair, and I didn't know what she was doing. You know, she was taking a lot of notes. But then when she came up to me afterwards, she had composed a complete like comic book of my presentation with illustrations and quotes. Oh. I was just like, that's awesome. <laughs> That's so adorable. Just like, That's rare, you know. Do authors get that? It was pretty awesome to no, me.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard that one before. <laughs>
1: I was just like, yeah, here, look, I got you. And then she shows me all.
0: And the by the way, if an adult did that to you, it'd be a little weird. But... I
1: mean, <laughs> here yeah. you go. I don't like, know if you no, want thank a, you, a
0: grown man at your reading. Being like,
1: <laughs> yeah, don't do that. I am only you. high school kids.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and you have a fourteen-year-old, you said. I do. So that's sort of, you know, that's the age. Yeah. So what does your fourteen-year-old think of mom writing YA? Do they, is, is it is it a girl or boy? It's a girl. Oh yeah, girl. Um,
1: she loves it. I mean, she loves she loves it because um, I have access to all these people that she likes, like all the other authors that she actually likes more. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, oh, you know that, per- you know, here's, and I am able to give her copies of books that haven't come out yet. Um she's able to like, you know, hang out in backstage or what have you and meet some authors that she loves. So yeah, I get good points, you know, some points for that.
0: You're you're like cool mom. Yeah. A, but even if I
1: say cool mom, it's like I'm I'm not cool anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't ever <laughs> say you're cool. Exactly. It's gonna be like detached mom getting her <laughs> one thousand words a day. Exactly.
1: Detached mom. That's basically what I am, detached mom. I mean I, it's her school is new and um I'm able to like pretty much feed their library because all I do is donate the library, all the books that I get. And it's awesome. I I got to
0: donate. I mean, I have a bunch of adult books, but I get so many books. I can't keep them all.
1: I can't. It's too much. I have to donate.
0: (laughs) What are people sending you like blurb requests and stuff? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm lucky. That's cool.
0: It's cool. Yeah. It's like a high class problem, but like, I'm always like, how did you get my address? (laughs) Like I guess it's out there circulating, but people find me. I'm like these books come in from all these different oh, publishers. Oh no, I don't
1: get that. Wow, that's wild.
0: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm on some list somewhere. I yes. Uh, well, it's such a pleasure to meet you.
1: Thank you. It's fun. I
0: appreciate you coming over, and congratulations on uh, uh,
1: dealing with dealing, dealing in dreams. dreams. That's right.
0: Available now, yes. and uh, I guess the next one about a year from now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I right. can't wait. Well, good luck. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Alright, that is Lilium Rivera She is the author of a, a YA novel called Dealing in Dreams Available from Simon & Schuster Her website is LiliumRivera.com You can follow her on Twitter at LiliumR She's on Facebook, she's on Twitter Go find her online Her name is Lilium Rivera Her book is called Dealing in Dreams Go get your copy now Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. Don't forget to go get your copy of Juliet the Maniac, this month's official book club pick for the Nervous Breakdown book club. For more information on the Nervous Breakdown book club, please visit thenervousbreakdown.com. If you would like to support this podcast, just go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod tip your server if you would like to write to me the email address is letters at other tell me what you think the other people podcast has its own official app that app is completely free the other people would brad list the app go get it wherever you get your apps it's a high quality app What else can I tell you? Oh, uh, next week on the program, I have uh, an excellent conversation coming up for you with Lydia Fitzpatrick. Her debut novel is called Lights All Night Long, and uh, it is superb. The Los Angeles Times calls it a luminous debut, so get ready for that one. I'm starting a new job this week. As this episode goes live, I'll be in the thick of it, so... My life is about to get extremely busy. Not in a bad way, just like... It's gonna get busy. I'm gonna be talking about how busy I am. Are you excited? What else is going on? I've been doing an incredible amount of walking. I just feel like I should flag that. I think I've walked close to 25 miles in the last 24 hours. Like long, long walks across the city, up into the hills, like so I could just, the kind of walking that normal people don't do. I like to walk. I'm good at it. It's one of the things I think I have a particular talent for.